0: Chapters twenty five and twenty six of When Shadows Die by E. D. E. N. Southworth. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Bridget Gage. Chapter twenty five. Father and Daughter. It was not until the next June, when we had been parted nearly two years, that I saw my father again. He came over suddenly and dropped down on us, so to speak, on the morning of the fifth of that month. Steward and housekeeper were both taken aback and flustered, as they described themselves, yet they were not unprepared. The house was always as well kept as the circumstances would permit. Nor was Miss Murray. She also had done her duty, and could present her pupil without fear of criticism. We were both in the schoolroom, my governess and I, when the door opened and someone entered unannounced. I looked up from my slate to see a tall, stately man with a pale face framed in black hair and black whiskers standing in the doorway. I recognized my father and flew to his embrace, before Miss Murray could rise to receive him with deliberate decorum. My father kissed me with much love, and received Miss Murray's greetings with stately politeness. Later on, when I had recovered from my surprise and excitement at his sudden appearance, He explained that he had but lately returned to England, and had taken his delicate wife and child to London, which was then in the fine June days, at the height of the fashionable season, and had left them on a visit to his mother-in-law, the dowager Lady Burnshot, who had a fine house near Hyde Park, and that he had seized this first opportunity to run to Ireland to see his dear little daughter. He further explained that he could not bring the countess and the little Viscount, because she could not bear the sea air yet. He brought me a doll and a doll set of furniture, all of which delighted me almost as much as his visit, for, will it be believed, I had not possessed a doll since the death of my own mother, and I was only six years old. My father remained only a few days at Weird Waste, during which he invited the vicar and the doctor to dine and talk with him over the affairs of the estate and the condition of my health, to thank them for their past kindness, and to ask their continued supervision of his daughter's welfare. I cannot take her with me to London at present, he said, for we are visiting at the house of Lady Burnshot, the mother of my wife. Besides, I think, for her own sake, little Elfrida is much better here for a few years longer. The doctor and the vicar agreed with my father, that I was much better off at Weirdwaste than I could be in London, and so there was no more to be said. My father took a very loving leave of me at the end of the week. After he was gone I grieved myself sick. I loved him so dearly, I longed to go with him so ardently, but it was not to be. Why do I linger over these details? Is it because we all grow garrulous when talking or writing of our childhood? Or is it because I dread to approach the period of my life's tragedy? Or do both these causes combine to influence me? I know not, but I know that I must hurry toward that from which I shrink. A few weeks after this, being in the heat of summer, My father came again to see me, bringing my stepmother and my little baby brother with him. He had written to apprise us of the visit, so we were all ready for him. All the animosity I had ever felt against my stepmother vanished when I saw her pale, patient face. My child heart pitied her, and from pity I loved her, and did everything in my small power to please her, except this, I would not call her mother. I said it would not be right toward my own dear mother who was in heaven." And she kissed me, and said she only was sorry she had not been able to do a mother's part by her motherless child, for that she, too, would soon be in heaven, where she would meet my own mother, when she could only tell her that she loved, but had not been able to serve, her daughter. As for my infant brother, now a year old, I idolized him. His mother delighted in my affection for her child. I have not been able to be good to you, my poor little girl, but you will be good to him when I am gone, will you not? She inquired. "'Indeed, indeed, I will. "'I will love him better than myself. "'I will die for him,' I said, "'taking the extravagant view "'and using the exaggerated language "'that was usual with me. "'The chills of autumn come very early at Weird Waste, "'and so about the middle of September, "'when the evenings began to be cold, "'my father took my stepmother and my baby brother back "'and settled them for a few weeks at Torquay, "'then believed to be the best winter resort in England. "'I grieved after them for a week or more,' and, oh, how I wondered why they could not take me with them. The reason was this, as I afterward learned, that the state of Lady Underby's health made it impossible for me to be with them, especially in a lodging-house. My father did not visit Weird Waste again for a long time. He spent the winter with his wife and infant son at Turkey, and in the early summer took them to Switzerland, and in autumn to the Grecian archipelago. In fact, two more years passed before I saw my father again. Then it was June and the height of the London season, and he had brought his wife to London and left her on a visit to her mother, the Baroness Burnshot. But on this occasion he brought my little brother over to Ireland and down to Weirdwaste. The child was now called Vicomte Glennon, and was a beautiful boy, nearly three years old. I was at that time a little old woman of eight. All the years that I have lived and all the sorrows that I have suffered have never made me as old as I was at eight. But again my heart leaped to meet my father and brother, and I loved and adored them. I asked why my stepmother had not come with them. My father told me that she was much too frail to bear the sea air, even in summer. He was satisfied with my health and with my progress in learning, and so he left us, taking the boy with him. I had now been more than four years at Dreary Weird Waste, and had not known any home but the old manor house, or any society than its inmates. As these first four years passed, so passed the next seven. My father came about once a year to see me, bringing my brother with him. He always spent a week at Weirdwaste and then returned to England, taking my brother with him. His time was entirely devoted to his invalid wife, whose life seemed only to be prolonged by his incessant care. They were always moving from place to place, as the seasons changed, in Switzerland, or in Norway, or Sweden in the summer in the south of France, in Italy, or among the isles of the Grecian archipelago in winter. Sometimes in the finest weather of the early summer they came to London, during which time the countess would visit her mother, and then my father would take my little brother and come on a flying visit to me. So the years went on, until I reached my fifteenth year, when the days of my dark destiny drew near. Chapter 26 Brighton Years Ago You may never have occasion to read these lines, yet I come to my task from time to time to prepare them for you. Let me resume. I never was reconciled to my lonely life at Weird Waste, but as the years passed on, and I grew toward womanhood, the solitude and monotony of my surroundings pressed more and more heavily upon my health and spirits. My father, in these years, seemed almost to have forgotten me. He was with my mother on one of the islands of the Grecian Archipelago for her health, My little brother, now a well-grown schoolboy, was at rugby. You see, our family of four was scattered. About this time my health and spirits became so seriously affected that Dr. Alexander thought it necessary to call my father's attention to the fact. He wrote to him, and in due time received an answer. It was something to this effect. "'As you recommend the South Coast, you will please take the girl to Brighton, and take suitable lodgings for herself and her attendants.' As she is no longer a child, she must have more advanced teachers. Miss Murray may be retained as her companion or chaperone, but a French governess must be engaged for her. I leave all this to you. Our good vicar will be able to assist you. My son will join his sister at the seaside for the midsummer holidays. Draw on me for the necessary funds. The prospect of any change filled my soul with delightful anticipations. It was now the middle of June, By the first of July I was established in delightful lodgings on the King's Road facing the sea. We had the whole of the first floor, consisting of a suit of eight rooms, drawing room, dining room, school room, bathroom, and four bedrooms. I was delighted with the gay vision of life and motion all around me. There seemed to be a perpetual gala. The splendor of the view from my front windows was not all the splendor of sea and sky. It was fleets of gaily decked craft, of all sizes and shapes from the queenly yacht to the pretty little rowboats, and the pier with its bazaars of toys, trinkets, and jewelry, the bathing-houses, the frolicsome children in the surf or on the sands, the brilliant crowds on the esplanade, the bands of music, the magnificent shops, with displays of sumptuous fabrics and splendid jewels, not to be surpassed in those of Paris or Constantinople. In fact, to me, who had never been in a town before, to me, coming from lonely and dreary weird-waste, Brighton was a dazzling, bewildering scene of light, life, gaiety, splendor, and magnificence. And if it was all this viewed only from the front windows of my lodgings, what was it, let me ask you, afterward, when my schoolboy brother and his friends came, full of high spirits to make the most of our opportunities? On the second day after our installment at our lodgings, we were joined by the French governess who had been engaged for me. She was a small, dark, middle-aged woman, with black hair and sharp black eyes, her name was Champe, Madame Doulachamp. Her last place had been in the service of a duchess, whose last daughter, having just been married, Madame found herself under the necessity of seeking a new engagement, and had found one through the vicar's answer to her advertisement. I did not like her, though she came so highly recommended. But my prejudice against the Frenchwoman was not the slightest drawback to my intense enjoyment of my new and delightful surroundings. On the fourth day after our arrival, we were joined by my brother and his friend. My brother was then a bright lad of twelve, looking older than his years, because he was really a very precocious boy. He greeted me with the warmest affection, and promised me a jolly old time. His friend was Angus Anglesia, a young man eight years his senior, who, however, had formed a strong attachment for the bright lad, and taken him under his protection, Angus Anglesea was at this time about twenty years of age, with a form of medium height, slender and fair, with light hair and moustache and blue eyes. His appearance and manners were pleasing and attractive. I could not have believed any evil of him then. On the day after the arrival of my brother and his friend, the good doctor, who had accompanied us to Brighton, took his leave, after having warned my teachers that their office was, for the present, a sinecure and that there were really to be no lessons for the next three months, or until my health should be fully re-established. After the doctor left, our days were given up to enjoyment—walks on the esplanade, sails on the sea, bathing in the surf, drives along the coast, rides over the downs, saunters on the pure—a perpetual recurrence of delightful recreations, each one enhancing the pleasures of all the others. It seemed paradise to me. My brother lived with us, of course. "'Angus Anglesia had lodgings near us "'and came every day to join in our amusements. "'The Eleventh Hussars were stationed at Brighton Barracks then, "'and the officers were often on parade. "'Anglesia was not at that time in the army. "'He received his commission afterward, "'but he knew a number of the officers "'and introduced some of them to me. "'My French governess or my English teacher "'was always at my side on these occasions. "'So three enchanting months passed.' My brother's holidays were over, and he was now to go to Eton. My father's London solicitor was charged with the duty of making all the arrangements for his entrance into college. On the 15th of September he left me, with the promise to return and spend the Christmas holidays with me, for I was to winter at Brighton. Angus Anglesea remained at Brighton. Friends and neighbors of his father's in Lancashire, the Earl and Countess of Middlemore, with their only daughter, had arrived at their seaside home on Brunswick Terrace, and Anglesia had remained to see them. Even then he was reported to be engaged to the Lady Mary. Soon I heard that young Anglesia had left his lodgings and accepted the invitation of the Earl and Countess to make their house his home during his sojourn at the seaside. After this we did not see so much of young Anglesia. He came but seldom to our lodgings and never joined us in our walks on the seaside. Whenever we chanced to meet him, he was in the company of the Middlemores, either driving or walking with them. If Brighton had seemed to me the paradise of life and light, splendor and gaiety, in the summer months, when the season was at its lowest ebb, what was it, if you please, in the early autumn, when the tide of wealth and fashion set in? No words of mine can describe my impression of it, my delight in it. The bijou of a theater, and the elegant assembly rooms, were opened for the season. The paradise was one panorama of brilliant crowds, It was like nothing real to my simplicity. End of chapter 26